Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods and practice. In this episode of Give Methods a Chance, I talk with Debbie Carr, a sociologist at Rutgers University, about life course and longitudinal studies. In our conversation, we address issues of sampling, measurement, and survey design. So we're here today to talk about longitudinal and life course studies with Debbie Carr. So if you were going to introduce this method to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it, how would you describe this methodological approach? Sure. In order to study aging, you can't really look at people at just one point in time to understand what their lives are like. We really need to talk to people at multiple points over time so we can see how they change as they age. We also want to see how their experiences differ based on historical changes in the world that might be happening. And so what we do in longitudinal approaches, it will have a random sample or ideally a random sample of a population that we're interested in and then we will interview them at regular intervals. It can be anywhere from every year, every 10 years, every 20 years, but the important point is that you follow up individuals over time so you can really track change and continuity in their lives. And importantly for aging, you can also track when people drop out of the study, either due to death or disability. And that's really important to document those sources of selection, meaning that you want to make sure that you're focusing on all people, not just those people who are healthy enough to participate in multiple interviews. I know that you've done this approach before in several studies, so um, what project are you going to tell us about? And when you got started, what was your central research questions? Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study. And I started working on this project when I was a first-year graduate student, so I've been with it for a long time. Um, I'll say a little bit about what the data are like and then the kind of things I use them for. And it's important to note that sometimes a longitudinal study begins to study one topic, but then as the participants in the study age and change, the research questions change as well. So the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study began in 1957, which predates my existence on this planet. But in 1957, every high school senior in the state of Wisconsin filled out a short survey about their plans for the future. Were you going to go to college? What were you going to do? And years later, a sociologist named Bill Sewell found this box of surveys and realized, hey, this is really rich data. We should follow up these high school students to see what happens to them. And that is basically how the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study was born. So it was a survey of every single high school senior in the state of Wisconsin in 1957. And then research teams went in and re-interviewed them in 1975 when they were in their 30s. And then 1994 when they were in their 50s. And 2004 when they were in their 60s. And we just got out of the field last year and interviewed them again in their 70s. So we really have a complete life course history of this particular cohort. I started graduate school around the time that the principal investigator investigator, Bob Hauser, was re-interviewing them in the 90s, so they were in their 50s then. And so I had a lot of questions about, you know, what happens to people? What happens to those people who want to be doctors when they're in high school, and then they grow up and they're a car mechanic? And so my dissertation was on precisely that. What happens to people in terms of goal attainment, and does it affect your mental health and your sense of self 
if by middle age you've either fallen short of your youthful aspirations or you far exceeded them. So the WLS was ideally suited for that question because I knew what kids wanted when they were 18 and then I knew what they actually accomplished. So I could look at matches or mismatches between what people wanted out of life and what they ultimately got. And clearly there's no way to get at that other than a longitudinal study. When you were matching the questions, you know, how did you specifically design this kind of project? First, when you do a survey, oftentimes they're written by teams of researchers, and especially because sociology touches on so many areas, from economics to psychology, increasingly to genetics and neuroscience, that often you'll bring together a whole team of people to actually write the survey questions and to figure out what do we care about. Do we care about family? Do we care about disability? Do we care about money? And so you bring together a team of a bunch of professors and graduate students. Everybody has their wish list, but the wish list often ends up in a survey that would be about four hours long. And survey researchers know you cannot do a four-hour long survey. You need to do a survey where you keep your interviewees on the phone for about 45 to 60 minutes or else they get cranky and they drop out. So often what you'll do is you will write as an investigator a three to four hour long survey and then you'll pretest it on other members of the team. You will pretest it on people you know who are the age of the people in your study. So for instance, I put my poor mother through a four hour interview and you get all that feedback and then you pare it down to about 45 minutes. And so that's how the main survey design happens. But then when you have all this survey data, our next step is to use the data in a paper to do a statistical analysis. So what you usually do is you look through the code book and a code book is a document that tells you all the questions in the survey but more importantly it tells you the response distributions. So how many are male or female? How many people are happy versus sad in their marriage? And then once you have a sense of what the data look like, you can start picking variables to start doing your analysis. And so my interest really was in this fact that we had people's career goals at age 17. We knew what they were doing in their careers at age 35 and at 50. So then I started thinking about ways kind of mapping to figure out what is the gap between what one wants and what one has. And that's when you start really playing with the data to come up with some of your analytic decisions. So when you were designing this project, what came first for you? Was it the topic or the question, or was it this, this idea that you wanted to do a longitudinal study? Honestly, I didn't have choice in it being a longitudinal study. It was honestly serendipity that I was brought in as a graduate student at precisely the time the primary investigators on the study were writing the survey. So I was very lucky. And for other people doing this kind of research, they might not be lucky enough to have written the survey itself. For most people, you know, for most students listening to this, they will have access to a data set by actually finding the code book through something like ICPSR or through your pop center at Michigan. And so where most of the start is by looking at the code book or the survey. And you'll read through all these really interesting questions. And you'll say, huh, here are questions on goals. Here are questions on depressive symptoms. Has anybody put it together? And if not, I'm going to put it together. So that's one way you can go about it, really starting at the variables and code books and then dreaming up a question based on what you see. That's one approach. 
The other approach is to read the literature, to read the theory and say, hey, here's a really important theoretical question. How does goal attainment affect mental health? Then, after you ascertain that question, you start looking around and Googling around to find a survey that gives you the capacity to answer that question. So either way, you're doing exploration, whether it's bottom up or top up. You know, I think mine was a little bit of both. I was exposed to the data, but I also had this question I wanted to answer, and it really was luck and serendipity that allowed me to use data in front of me to answer a question. And once you did the study, uh, what did you find? Can you share with us one of these core findings or, or what your big sociological contribution was? I can. I, I hope it was a sociological contribution. Um, it was interesting and it was not what I had expected. And in fact, these unexpected findings are what really turned me into a life course researcher. Um, I started graduate school as kind of a social psychologist and strat person. And this project actually made me think about whole lives in a very different way. First of all, I found that for men, that if the job they held in their 30s was of lower status or was a poorer quality job than the job they wanted at 17, it had negative effects on their self-esteem and on depressive symptoms. So men who kind of failed to get what they wanted by the time they were in their 30s really did suffer psychologically. For women, I found no relationship of any kind. It didn't matter what job they wanted at 17, how it related to what they were doing at 35. It had no impact at all. But if you do the second part of the analysis, looking at someone's age 17 goals and then what they've achieved by their 50s, I found that for, the, for men, the goals they had in their 30s and then what they achieved by their 50s, for men, it didn't matter at all what they had attained relative to their age 35 goals. And for women, it had a huge effect. Women who at 50 have fallen short of the goals they had as youngish adults at 35 were much more depressed and had lower self-esteem. So there's this interesting puzzle. Why did we find gender differences based on the age they were when they stated their goals? And that's when I really came up with some interesting answers that generated some later qualitative work. For men who were born in the 30s, the goals they had for themselves at 18 really were meaningful goals. These were genuine career goals. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be an engineer. And if they failed to achieve that by their 30s, they really felt not very good about themselves. Likewise, if they did achieve their goals, they felt good about themselves. For women, if you look at the goals they stated for themselves in 1957, it was a very tiny list across all women. Almost all women in the survey said they wanted to be a teacher, nurse, or social worker. And so it struck me that those weren't really goals that were heartfelt the way young women have today. It was basically women knew they had three jobs at their disposal back in the 50s. Maybe they weren't particularly wed to the notion, but they said, I want to be a nurse, teacher, or social worker, because that was the only opportunity available for them. So subsequently, if they didn't meet that goal, it didn't really matter. It wasn't something they were that pumped up about in the first place. So I think it has to do with the meaning of your goals at a particular age and particular historical moment. So that was the first chunk. But then the second chunk, I think also tells us really interesting things about the life course and for especially for a particular birth cohort. For men, the goals they had in their 30s, whether or not they reached that goal by their 50s, again, totally didn't matter. And here's why. When you look at men's goals in their 30s, they were kind of like the women in the 50s. None of them really had a dream at 35. They would say things like, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. 
you know, I have to put food on the table. So I really don't have a choice about what I do. So consequently, when these guys were in their 50s, it didn't matter whether they had reached their goal or not. Their goal wasn't a real goal. It was just kind of this passive sticking to what they were already doing. For the women, again, in their 30s, by now it was the 1970s, the world had changed, and these women in their 30s had a whole world of opportunity available to them. They had many more varied goals in their 30s than they did back in their teens, and these were meaningful goals. They had raised their kids, the women's movement created new opportunities for them. So by their 30s, they got this new lease on life, they had these new career goals, and then if they had reached them by 20 years later in their 50s, they really did feel good about themselves. So it's very long, complex findings that hopefully are coming across clearly, but they really show that our goals are very much linked into, develop into developmental processes as well as historical processes speaking to the opportunities available to men and women. Wow, that is super interesting um, and great questions. And, and, you know, when you were starting this project, before you knew about this sort of serendipitous connection with the availability of this data, um, did you uh, consider taking other methodological approaches? That's a good question. And honestly, not really. And part of the reason why was that I was a research assistant on this one particular survey all through graduate school. And so I think another lesson actually for grad students is sometimes you have to be practical in your choices. So at that time, I really had just the survey data at my disposal. But a couple years later, I had an opportunity to work with the team to go back and do open-ended interviews with some of these respondents. And it was in that open-ended interviews that I got these much more elaborate comments from these men who would say things such as like, you know, I always wanted to open a car lot of my own. I always wanted my own business, but I just couldn't do that in my 30s because I had kids and I wasn't free to explore. Um, likewise, the women would talk about the fact that they witnessed their daughters having these goals. And so they said, hey, you know, I can have a goal for myself, too. It's not just this younger generation of women. I can also do that. So it came later in the process when the opportunity became available. But I always think if you can do open-ended interviews in addition to surveys and really get people's perspectives, that really helps us to interpret the statistical findings that we have based on straight survey data. So can we talk a little more about how the survey data is actually collected and for this type of longitudinal study, what kind of sampling strategies were used? Sure, that's a good question and a big question. Um, you know, the starting point for any survey is that you have a sampling frame, which is the population you are interested in. So it could be all Americans, all residents of the state of New Jersey, all high school seniors in the state of Wisconsin. And so once you have that population you're interested in, your sampling frame, your job then is to focus on a reasonable number of people. And surveys are very expensive to do to write, to administer, to enter the data, to pay your subjects if that's how you're so inclined. So you need to do something to get your uh, samples small enough to be reasonable and manageable, yet at the same time be big enough so that you can look at intersectionality, for instance. If you want to look at the intersection of race and gender or gender in class, you need a big enough sample to fill those subgroups, right? So that's generally how it happens. The WLS is unique, I mean genuinely unique, in that it had the sampling frame initially of every high school senior in the state of Wisconsin. And then the researchers realized they couldn't interview all of them, so they took a one-third random sample. So what you'll do is you'll figure out the proportion you need 
to give yourself a large enough sample to go and then you'll do random selection literally one out of every three got randomly chosen to participate in the survey and you do random selection in order to really have a representative sample to ensure that your sample captures the sampling frame rather than just the energetic people or the smart people or the cooperative people, right? Those people who self-select in have very distinct traits that set them apart. So the random sampling is absolutely critical. But in longitudinal studies, we also have this additional challenge, which is this notion of selective attrition. And selective attrition means that once you start following people over time, some people are going to drop out or attrite. And on average, the people who drop out of our surveys are people often at kind of the higher low end of the distribution of traits. So less educated people will drop out more often. Sometimes they have problems reading a survey. Those people with very fractured family lives, those people with bad health, those people with early onset of cognitive impairment, those are the people not participating in our survey. At the other end, sometimes you'll have you know, very highly educated, super busy people who don't participate in the survey, but that tends to be less common. But the reason I emphasize this point of selective attrition is that if the worst off people in your sample drop out, right, at later waves, it's going to look on average like you have a really happy, healthy, smart, wealthy sample. And the reason a sample often looks better over time in terms of health and other things is because the worst off people are dropping out. And this is a huge issue for aging researchers because sometimes if you don't do your work right, you will plot a sample of people over time and it looks like, hey, people's health gets better as they get older. That's crazy. We know that there's decline with age. So if you find that the health of the sample looks better as people get older, it could be because of this issue of selective attrition. The sickest people, the saddest people drop out, leaving you only with the best off people as uh, kind of repeat reporters. So we have a whole bunch of statistical tricks we can use to try to suss out who has dropped out, and then you control for these issues statistically in your analysis to make sure that your sample really is as representative as possible, rather than being just a snapshot of those people who have had everything go their way in life. So given the complications of a longitudinal study, um, in, in your case, what barriers did you face or did your research team face when collecting the data? Yeah, there are a lot. I should say we pay interviewers to, to uh, do this. So I didn't really talk to any people. There are a lot of challenges that are faced. Um, first is merely finding the people. Now, mind you, today with the internet, you can find anybody. The internet is you know, the stalker's best friend. But when we were doing WLS back in the 90s, the internet was pretty new. And so if you interviewed someone in 1975, how the heck are you going to find them to interview them again in 1994 before there was Google? And so at that time, we had literally yellow pages and white pages from throughout the United States. There are other databases that tell you individuals next door neighbors. So you could call the neighbors they had in the 70s to help tell us where they moved to. So you would do a lot more sleuthing back then. But it's very hard sometimes for someone to get a call out of the blue to participate in a survey. If you haven't talked to them in 20 years, they might not remember you. So there are a lot of tricks we have up our sleeves to try to entice people to engage in a longitudinal study. 
One is that you have to lead with credibility. You always send your request on university letterhead or a logo. Another thing you do is maybe you'll give them a little report about what you found in the study previously. You'll kind of warm them up and say, thank you so much for participating last time. Here's a little newsletter that tells you about how your classmates are doing. And you give them some findings that demonstrate to them how helpful their contributions have been. Um, other things we do, sometimes you'll give them little treats, you'll give them a magnet, you'll give them a coffee mug, you'll give them $25. You do things to help people participate in the study and to sweeten the deal for them. But you don't sweeten the deal too much. You don't give people $100 because according to this famous Festinger study of about 50 years ago, if you pay people too much to do something, they're going to assume it's a really onerous, awful task. Like you should only do this awful task for like $100, right? The $100 says it's awful. You have to make a sacrifice. If you give them 10 or 20, they think, eh, it's not such a big deal. I'll do it. So those are some of the tricks you have to attract people into the study. Um, but then once they're in the study, you have to have a good survey. You can't drone on for two hours or else they're going to hang up on you. You have to have questions that are clear, that are not leading. You have to have questions that do not trigger distress in your subjects. They can't be questions that people will be offended by. So once they're actually in the survey, you have to make sure you keep them in the survey. Because if someone quits halfway through, then often you can't use any of your data because it's incomplete. So again, there are a whole bunch of strategies that we have at our disposal to find people, to get them in the survey, and then to keep them in the survey. So you have your data. Um, can you speak a little bit more of how you actually do the analysis? How do you analyze your data and what kind of uh, specific techniques do you use for this study? With any kind of survey data, what we end up seeing on the user side, whether you're involved in the study or you're just downloading from ICPSR or using GSS through the SDA app, you know, all the different tools that uh, you know, students and classmates may have at their disposal. First, you download the data. And literally, you end up downloading something that looks like an Excel file where every column is a person. It can be anywhere from 100 people to 10,000 to 20,000 people. So every column is a person. Then every row is a variable. And data sets are so big that when you download your data, there are devices today that you just click on the variables you want. You don't want all 10,000, but maybe you'll click on the variables of sex, age, social class, depressive symptoms, self-rated health, career aspirations. You choose those variables and those will be the, um, the rows to the column. So you have all this data in front of you and then what you end up doing is you translate it into a statistical analysis software such as SPSS or SAS or STATA. Those tend to be the big three that sociologists use and today STATA is by far the most common, followed by SAS, followed by SPSS. So when you start doing analysis, people often like to jump into regression, meaning multivariate analysis right away. They want to look at all the predictors of their outcome, but that's a really bad way to go. Um, what we want to do first is really do rich descriptive work of the data. So in any of the softwares I've me mentioned thus far, you can do descriptives. Just tell me the average education, the average depressive symptom level, or frequencies, how many men, how many women. Then you'll slowly work your way up, maybe to a cross-tabulation. 
do men and women differ in depressive symptoms? Or do high status versus low status workers differ significantly in their levels of self-esteem? You want to first look at these basic associations and you want to do basic associations between your independent variable or key predictor and your dependent variable or outcome. Because oftentimes if there's no zero order correlation or no real cross tab between two variables, you might not find anything once you do all the fancy multivariate stuff. So my advice is always start slowly and look at the relationships one-on-one -on -one between the variables of interest. Then, after you've ascertained that there's some basic association, let's say, between you know occupational status and depression, then you can move ahead and do the fancy stuff. And your choice of the fancy stuff, meaning which statistical model you do, generally is guided by what your dependent variable looks like. And by that I mean, is your dependent variable a continuous measure, such as dollars of income going from zero to 100,000, or number of depressive symptoms in the past week going from zero to seven. That's a continuous measure. So you would do plain OLS, ordinary least square regression for those kind of outcomes. But very often, the interests, the outcomes that sociologists are interested in are not continuous. They're not things like dollars or pounds. They tend to come in a different metric. So the second most common approach we use is something called logistic regression. We do that if our dependent variable or our outcome is a dichotomy, such as dead or alive, depressed or not depressed and so that might be a case whereby you look to see does someone have high or low self-esteem based on some cut point and so then your dependent variable is one zero for yes no and then you run multivariate analysis um, you can do something fancier which is multinomial logistic that's a case if you're predicting three categorical outcomes such as are you married divorced and widowed or never married so those are three different categories that are not rank ordered in any way. It's not like high, medium, low. It's just these three discrete categories. You want to predict who is a member in each category. Um, so those are just a couple of the analytic approaches used. There are many others that I'm happy to talk about if people are interested. Things like hazard models or structural equation models. But generally speaking, our choice of a method or analytic technique is based on the structure of our variables. Theory guides which variables we pick, but once the theory tells us which variables to pick, it really is just straight, very statistical facts that help us to choose whether it's regression or whatever kind of approach we choose. So generalizability and validity are, are central concepts when students are learning about research methodology. How did you factor those concepts into your project? I'll take the generalizability one first because it's easier and then we can move on to validity. Um, generalizability, of course, is a huge issue for any social scientist. You really want to demonstrate or argue that your results will likely stand up to the larger population. And that is true if you're analyzing census data, you know, which has a big presence at Minnesota, for instance. Census data is generalizable because it's all people in the United States. But with the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study, truly, we take a lot of heat for not being generalizable. Our sample are all high school grads during a time period when not all people graduated high school. Our sample is Wisconsin, which is a, a breed into itself, right, because every state has its own culture. It is overwhelmingly white because in the 1950s, African Americans and Native Americans in Wisconsin were far less likely to graduate high school. 
Likewise, these are, you know, they're educated people. You know, they're all graduates. So whenever we write a paper for Wisconsin Longitudinal Study, we know that someone's going to say, well, what does this tell us about blacks? What does this tell us about Hispanics? What does this tell us about people graduating high school in 1987 versus 1957? And so if you're working with a data set that you know is a specific population, you have to be honest. You have to say, nope. We cannot generalize to other cohorts, but here are reasons why we think our findings will stand up or alternatively not stand up in different cultural contexts. Then you come up with smart theoretical reasons to explain why your work will or will not be replicated. So that's one approach you can do. The other is you can show that your sample is in fact generalizable to other similar populations. So when we write about the WLS, which again is people born in 1939, grew up in Wisconsin, who are white, what we'll often do is compare some facts about the WLS sample members with, in general, other Americans born in 1940 who are white. And if we can say that some characteristics of our sample apply also to white Americans their age, that's yet another way to speak to this issue of generalizability. But there's always a tension between kind of defending what you've done, but being very honest. You know, my sample of WLS cannot explain the experience of blacks and Latinos in California in the year 2012, nor should we try to do so. It would be dishonest and disingenuous. That's external validity. The other forms, let's see, um, internal validity, you know, is survey researchers were never going to be as good as would an experimenter, right? Um, but what you'll often do is try to think about potential threats to causation when you're designing your regression and include all those statistical controls that you think might be a competing explanation for what you find. So in the study of goal attainment, do people who reach their goals have better mental health? Well, you might have to consider the fact that people who reach their goals have more money. Or people who reach their goals had happier childhoods and had happy supportive parents who helped them reach their goals and who also have the social support to ward off depression. So you always have to think about competing hypotheses and then do the very best you can by carefully choosing you know, a reasonably sized groups of control variables to put, to put into your analysis. You can't control for everything, right? Your model won't run if you have 300 control variables. But what you need to do is very carefully choose statistical controls that you think are the most plausible threats to causality. And you put them into your model. So that's an approach we would use to ensure that the study findings really are attributable to our causal measures. And then a final thing you can do in terms of reliability, and reliability means different things based on what kind of work you do, but I do a lot of psychological work. So the important thing is, if you're using a psychological measure like depressive symptoms, self-esteem, body image, even intelligence, you don't want to use one measure, such as how happy are you. You want to construct a scale, meaning you'll take the average of a bunch of survey items that are designed to measure the same construct. You'll calculate a reliability coefficient, such as an alpha, and the higher it is on a range of zero to one, the better the reliability. So if I'm doing depression, looking at depressive symptoms as my outcome, I'll look to see what is the alpha. Is it a good scale? Are these items really hanging together closely? If they're not, 
what you'll do is you'll find maybe there's an item in your scale that's just a bad item and you'll drop it because that helps to um, support the reliability of the specific outcome you're looking at. So a depression symptom scale would have your number of symptoms in terms of sad, blue, depressed, lost interest in things you usually like to do, but you probably wouldn't put in a general depression scale an item such as I'm depressed about my body size because that's not depression, that's body image. So you're always trying to figure out which questions have kind of face validity and then are they valid, reliable measures by um, kind of eyeballing them and look, using intuition to figure out whether they seem like a cohesive scale, but then using statistics in doing factor analyses to figure out whether these items really represent a true um, statistically distinct concept. Another issue that comes up in, in methodologies is um, the positionality of the researcher. So in your project, how does this play a role in your process or design? You no, know, I don't know if it does. And I know the issue of positionality means more in some fields versus others. Certainly for qualitative researchers, it matters. I think for those who belong to a different demographic or social class group than the people they're studying, it can be an issue. For most of us as survey researchers, it, it, it doesn't necessarily, for a variety of reasons. I think on average we're less political in our work than in some other strands of sociology. We have a question we want to answer. We have no great vested interest in how it turns out. We just want to know the answer. Um, also as survey researchers, most of us do not have direct contact with our subjects, so some aspects of positionality such as a prestige or feeling that you're being coercive to your subjects is something that doesn't really matter for us so much. I guess it always matters in terms of the kinds of questions you think are interesting. And the questions I asked, maybe it did a little bit. I think as someone, again, from a, personally from a blue-collar background, I'm interested in what happens to people and if they kind of transcend their roots and what that means for them. But I don't know if it had a particularly powerful effect and it also could be that I read the word positionality different than it's intended here, but I don't think it had a tremendous impact. Mm -hmm. And when you were writing you, your first manuscripts from your findings, um, who were you imagining as your audience, and how does that shape the way that we do our research? That's a good question. You know, when this was my dissertation, so of course, when you write your dissertation, you're thinking about pleasing your committee members. <laughs> part of the reason why dissertations are these big, fat, unwieldy, like really miserable to read products because you want to demonstrate your expertise to your committee. So that was probably my first audience. But at the same time, fortunately, I had one of my dissertation chapters accepted at Journal of Health and Social Behavior, which is the main journal in my area when I was writing um, the dissertation. And that really helped me to cut out a lot of the fat and really hit the main points. And when you write for a journal, you have to be concise and you have to use your words really selectively to show what are you doing in this paper that others haven't. So as I say to students, how is this paper different from all other papers as a way to get us thinking about the novel contribution than being impeccably clear about your methods because reviewers get agitated if they can't figure out what you're doing and writing it up kind of cleanly and clearly and making sure you're communicating with, you know, sociologists in general, but also with your subdiscipline, whether it's social gerontology, medical social, you know, mental health. You want to make sure you're citing the appropriate literatures and you're not going over the top, you know, with all these different theoretical tributaries. You kind of want to keep your eyes on the prize in order to have a 30-page, concise, 
readable paper. So that was kind of generally how I approached the audience in writing up the paper. But I should mention my, my first dissertation paper that came out, this Journal of Health and Social Behavior article was on it focused just on the women and women reaching their career goals. And I was very lucky that, or not lucky, depending on how you see this, but the media picked up this paper. So when I was either in grad school or a new assistant professor, you know, there was a big article about this in the New York Times and USA Today and various you know, TV programs and whatnot. So that was actually really instructive in teaching me how to get my findings down into a soundbite and hitting the main point and making it crisp and lively for an audience that doesn't know or care about survey research. All they care about is whether they've met their goals and whether that's going to make them happy or sad. So um, so these particular studies went through every iteration from dissertation to article to uh, you know, an article in, you know, the New York Times Sunday paper. That's excellent. So let's let's wrap up our discussion um, by talking about both the limitations and the advantages to your methodological approach here. So let's start with the limitations. Survey researchers beat themselves up, so we're always very aware of the limitations. Um, some of the ones we talked about already is bias. If you have a sample that really is, you know, just white Wisconsin graduates or whatever sample you have, you know, if it's ad health, it's just those kids who are still in school, you know, so there's always the fact that you may have a sample that's biased by design. Another, as we talked about earlier, you always have to be very aware of selective attrition. And when you study aging, it's selective mortality, those people who die early. You want to make sure that you're very clear about who was in your sample and the extent to which the composition of the sample biases it toward healthy, happy people or to kind of sad, sick people. Another is that in a survey, unless you write the survey, you're never going to have all the questions you need to answer your exact research question. So sometimes you have to make the best of what you have. Maybe you don't have the perfect measure of goal attainment, but you have the best that you could do at that moment. So it's always defending your measures and figuring out why they're good or not so good. I would guess those are probably the main ones. Um, again, measurement and composition of your survey. And then I guess the last one, which we already touched on a little bit, Surveys are always going to be constrained in that your respondents have forced choice categories, right? Are you depressed or not depressed? And you're not getting into the nature of their experiences. So certainly qualitative data would help to get their perceptions on process rather than me interpreting process based on the coefficient of a regression model. So then we'll close our discussion today with uh, what the main advantages are to this approach. For any researcher of life course and aging, longitudinal data, especially prospective data, are essential. And if we study whole lives, but we do it retrospectively, if we ask people at age 65 to recall upon their lives, there's a very powerful phenomenon called retrospective recall bias. And so people reconstruct their past in such a way that it meshes with their current conditions. So if someone is depressed, at 50 and you say have you met your career goals they're gonna say no of course not because they're depressed if someone's not depressed they're gonna say yeah I've been great at what I'm doing and so your current mood taints all your prior recollections and so I never could have done a study of goal attainment and mental health had I had people retrospect or recall their experiences 
but having prospective data where you ask people their goals at 18 and then you follow them up um, 20, 30 years later and I can look to see how, how they progress and then how those progressions affect their later mental health, you really are able to ascertain causal ordering and you don't have to worry that someone's kind of mucking up their perceptions due to their current mood. And this is essential really for aging researchers to have those multiple data points to study whole lives as they are unfolding and then along the way figuring out who are those people who stay in your study or who drop out and how are those experiences shaped by their early years. This is excellent. This is a wonderful overview of longitudinal studies. Um, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. On behalf of me, Kyle Green, and my co-producer, Sarah Logason, thank you for listening. And remember, please, give methods a chance.